This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. That's nice. All right. I think we've made the listeners wait long enough. Let's hear this. Get, uh, get Shen up to five chi trick in turn one. Basically, Howdy, friends. In this episode, we talk about Shen Long with Peter Sidway out of the UK. He walks us through how he uses all the different styles and when he uses them, how to get the most out of Sensei Yu, which 10 Thunder upgrades he likes, even some key out of keyword hires. I really like the segment where he talks about how he approaches Turf War and Corrupted Idols, and I think that uh, that'll be valuable to uh, anybody playing Malifaux, not just those playing Shen Long. Uh, there's some really nasty tricks he covers using the Wandering River Monks and certain schemes, and uh, a key segment on what schemes you should definitely not pick when you face Shen Long. Enjoy. strategy game allows you to unplug and test your skills against friends. Every week, Third Floor Wars delivers useful strategies, discussions, battle reports, and reviews to tabletop games like Malifaux. If you want to get better at the games you already play or discover the games other people are playing, you are in the right place. Craig and Ray welcome you to the third floor and the Tabletop Talk broadcast. Craig here on the third floor. Today we're going to do a deep dive into the Ten Thunders Master Shen Long and how his monk keyword crew works in Malifaux 3rd Edition. My guest today is Peter Sidaway. Now, we've seen Peter hitting the podium pretty uh, actively, especially now that he's back in playing Malifaux. Um, where I really enjoy uh, connecting with Peter is on his blog. His blog is the Midtable Obscurity blog, and he's been putting up some very interesting articles. And we'll have uh, links to that uh, blog in the show notes. Uh, you might want to make sure you check it out. So, Peter, welcome to the third floor. Thank you very much for having me. So what have you been playing lately? Mostly Shen Long, literally. Yeah, has it been? <laughs> <laughs> So before we even get into it, Peter, I've been really looking forward to uh, to this because I think that uh, there's kind of two boogeymen right now in third edition, and it's uh, Zareda and Shen Long. Um, I think that's where I'm hearing most of the uh, the grumblings about. So um, I think that uh, I am very anxious uh, to learn more about it. Um, now, have you always been a Ten Thunders player, or is uh, this new for you in third edition? No, so I was originally Ten Thunders when Tui came out. Um, and then briefly switched to Outcasts, but Ten Thunder's always been my sort of true passion. Gotcha. And uh, other than, uh, do you play all the Masters, or pretty much primarily Shenlong? Currently in M3E, just Shenlong. Um, trying out Yan Lo as well, after one of your uh, great podcasts on him. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm, I've got to get my Yan Lo painted, because I'm dying to put him on the table. He looks really strong. I really like the look yeah. of him. Yep, definitely. All right. So what we're going to do, Peter, is I want to really kind of uh, focus on um, kind of your thoughts on Shen Long, how you build a, a monk crew, uh, how you 
you know, address and, and get into uh, crew building when relative to the pools and things like that. So to kind of kick us off, can you give me a kind of an overview? Let's pretend one of the listeners has never heard or played uh, or seen Shenlong. What do they need to know about Shenlong out of the gate? So Shenlong basically, from a background point of view, he's a sort of a Shaolin monk type character, um, but he's actually the host of the Dragon Tyrant. So he's, he is one of the um, hosts of the, one of the various tyrants at Knockman in Malifaux. Um, from a master point of view, um, he's kind of a mixed bag, really. Um, he's most infamous being the beater, um, but I think he can switch up to doing support um, and, a, and a number of other functions as well. But I think it's his beater sort of side of him that's given everybody the boogeyman view of him. <laughs> and we probably should go right into kind of that main mechanic. So can we talk about the uh, chi and the different styles? Yeah. So the monk sort of keyword generally has the chi um, ability, um, which basically gives them a, a resource every time they activate that they can spend either for a plus two to a duel or certain abilities and certain triggers and things like that actually require you to spend a chi before they can go off. But I think it's the plus two to any flip, basically, um, that you can spend the chief for, which is, is a strong part of it. Yeah, I agree. And I think for me, the biggest part about that is that you get to decide post flip. So it's not like focus where you have to spend the focus and then see what happens. You actually get to flip and then decide whether you're going to spend the chi or not, correct? Yeah, so it's post post flip, but pre-cheat. So you have to, if you, if you want to actually cheat another card in, you have to use your focus before you do the cheat. But the plus two does carry over to the cheated card as well. Yeah, that's nice. It's, I find it really useful to sort of deter the opponent. So if you hit a 15 and they hit a 16, you just burn that chi, takes off up to one more than them, and they've got to then start flipping uh, and cheating first. Yeah, so, um, so that's, I mean, that's the chi sort of side of it. It's, I think the, the big versatility is it's any flip. Um, yeah. So... If, if it's a simple duel, opposed duel, um, anything like that, it, it's a plus two. What it obviously doesn't do is change the severity of the hit. So, you, you know, it's still a weak, moderate or severe, so it can't be used to manipulate that kind of aspect of it. But it's certainly very powerful for for basically card, card manipulation and making your um, control hand a lot stronger than what it would be normally, as well as the stats of some of the uh, monk keyword yeah, and I think you can't. You also can't underestimate the psychological damage that 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 does um, when you, you know you're flipping tight and you're just seeing seeing that Shenlong player just you know burning a cheetah just barely get over the edge uh, and push it over. And I like your point, Peter, about uh, it deterring cheating. Yeah, I found quite a few times where it sort of you you burn your chi first, and you don't need to actually cheat because the opponent is so sort of psychologically put off from cheating, knowing that. If you're holding a 13, they just simply cannot beat you. Uh, right. That some of the times they will just basically allow you to do the moves that you've tried to pull off um, and have to use the cheat to get through it. And you've saved that 13 if you did have it. Yeah, exactly. So m- most of the crew uh, with chi and 13 in hand is pretty much unstoppable. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, how, how is he getting chi? Or how, how are the different monks acquiring the chi? So the main uh, way of acquiring it is whenever a monk uh, keyword activates, they just gain one chi. Um, so that's fairly straightforward. Again, there are certain triggers and certain um, abilities which um, generate more chi. Probably the most sort of uh, well-known of them is that Sensei U. If, uh, if a model takes damage, so if a monk model takes damage within six inches of uh, Sensei U, they gain a chi once per activation. 
Yeah, and that's so the reliable thing is obviously when they activate, and then there's other things, Sensei you and triggers that can that can get that. Can you kind of give me an idea? You know, how much chi is he walking around with on a given turn usually, Shenlong? Typically, by the end of the first turn, he's normally got five or six, but that's because wow. that's because there's a very sort of sneaky little trick which you play in the first turn in order to deliberately power up his chi along with other conditions and things that actually will help you later on. Um, most of the other monks will only normally have one or two. So they don't, gotcha. t- they don't, they don't tend to get that high. Um, but if, if left alone, obviously, they can just slowly accrue it. Well, everybody listening right now is dying to hear the trick, and I'm going to make them wait. <laughs> so we'll, we'll talk about that a, a more in a second. So let's now, the chi is obviously a big mechanic, but I think the other big thing is is to cover the uh, different styles and how that works. Um, and let's talk about, if you don't mind, Peter, in context of him as well as the aspiring. Yeah, so basically there's, there's four styles, um, and anybody who's played sort of M2E will be, will be familiar with them, um, and they are based on the various types of monks that you can also get. So there's low river style, wandering river style, high river style, and fermented river style. And it's these styles that basically make him that much fle- that more, more flexible. Um, there's a style for healing. There's a style for a, a much higher blast combat type attacks. There's a style that does sort of pushing around of models and schemes and, and uh, scheme markers and grappling corpse markers. Um, and then there's the fermented river style, which I think is the boogeyman um, style, which basically what turns him into the beat that everyone comes to know and fear. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the nice thing about when, when he equips a style, uh, the appropriate monk of that style gets to focus for free. So if he equips Wandering River style, any Wandering River monks in your crew automatically get a focus from that, um, which, which is powerful to begin with. And then also each of the styles has basically got an ability on it and an action on it. Um, and the aspiring students can, for their bonus action, take the action off the style which Shenlong has attached to him, irrespective of range. So it doesn't matter where Shenlong is on the board, they can take the action associated to the uh, style he's currently uh, attached. Yeah, that's nice. Now, when when does he pick his styles? When he activates? Yeah, so basically at the start of activation, he discards all his styles, or well, his style singular, um, and then can equip the style. And obviously, he can re-equip the one that he had the previous turn, or he can choose to... Uh, swap to another one there is also a trigger on each of the actions that are built onto the cards to allow him to switch styles um at, you know, at the end of that particular action so he, he has got some flexibility for swapping during turns yeah and i think the kind of the big thing that i've noticed and i'd be curious to know your thoughts um you know when we talk about the flexibility i think what's key here is he's not picking the style at the beginning of the turn it's when he's activating so i think it allows the shenlong player really to to, to see the board state in a much better condition, possibly mid or late turn, to know what style to flip to. Yeah, you're basically looking at which style is, is required at the specific moment you activate. Um, so, you know, does he need to get out, get out of dodge? Does he need to heal himself? Is he embroiled in a big fight and needs to sort of really bring the pain? And you, you can pick the style which is specific to you, um, but also not underestimating the power of the students to pick up that style as well. Um, when they start using some of the sort of the attacks that Shenlong can generate off his attack, off his styles, um, that can also throw the opponents for a loop. Yeah, without question. I think that was one of the things that snuck up on me the first time I came across it. So let's talk about um, him as a beater. So this, I, I get the feeling that from a style perspective, that's the fermented style. So yeah, so um, High River style is technically another beater one as well. It gives him a sort of dangerous attack with blasts and stuff, but it's the combination of fermented river style of its ability and its attack. 
So its ability does the sort of the classic drunken kung fu switch, where it switches all negative modifiers to positive and all positive modifiers to negative, mm-hmm. um, which obviously means that um, you know on, on damage flips it's really powerful because that that double negative, that single negative, suddenly becomes positive, double positive. Yeah. Um, um, and so his attack, his attacks will genuinely be doing moderate to severe damage, um, and most of them top end at sort of five damage. So all of a sudden you've got a master who's consistently probably putting out at least three, probably five damage on every blow he lands. That's so good. Um, yeah, it is. It's, it's really strong, and that's that's part of the reason why he gets the sort of the beta reputation, um, because obviously the ne- flipping the negatives to positives means that things like serene countenance means absolutely nothing to him. Manipulative. Yep. Absolutely nothing. He actually prefers attacking models with those on them because he'll automatically get that built-in sort of positive on the attack. Uh, hard to wound. He loves it. Um, again, that makes it really hard for you to get anything beyond a straight flip from the damage. Um, so that, that drunken kung fu ability is, is very strong. And then the attack associated on that card is also incredibly mobile due to the amount of movement it allows before before you trigger it. So. You make your charge action, so in Shenlong's case, five-inch charge, um, and then you have to spend a chi to do the falling rave kick. Um, but as a prerequisite of doing the attack, you then get to move another six inches, oh. um, and that really opens up his threat range. So he's, he's capable of like a 22, 23-inch um, <laughs> strike because of his two moves and then this falling rave kick. Yeah. But the other obvious thing is that the falling rave kick doesn't say anything about it's not disengaging strikes, it's nothing like that. So if you're engaged with multiple opponents, you can use that movement built into that falling rave kick to move yourself around out of the engagements of all but one of the models and just be engaged with one person when you kick them or even charge around corners effectively because, again, it's a right. move, it's not a push. He can he can really sort of seek out and find the target he wants to attack. Yeah, that's that that, that and it, it, that's really tough. I think for the opponent to be able to, to to compute all those vectors. I mean, I would think to a certain degree when you're playing, and Peter, there's times where you go, "Oh, I, I guess I can get to there." Yeah, and I think that's the sort of the the, the next level stuff you're coming onto later on is just spotting all those opportunities of when you can get to somebody or when you can use it to get out of combat or all the possibilities of sort of that um, the combination because. It also finishes with more movement as well. So once you finish the attack, if you succeed, you then get to push one inch. So again, you oh, can, wow. so once you've even gone in, hit somebody, you can then push out to allow yourself to be unengaged. And does he, does he have a one or a two inch engagement? Uh, he's got one inch. So all his attacks yeah. are one inch. So yeah, basically, assuming your opponent doesn't have a two in, your, your your opponent model doesn't have a two inch engagement range, you can come in, hit them, and then push yourself out so you're unengaged with them, um, which does play nicely into one of his other attacks as well. Which one's that? So he's got uh, a ranged attack, uh, which does have the gun symbol, um, but it basically ignores hard to kill and demise triggers. So another classic one is he'll come flying across the board, slam into an opponent, you know, do them some damage using either the, you know, the drunken rave kick. He will then, pu- when he puts his opponent onto maybe sort of one or two wounds, he pushes out and shoots them with the anti demise trigger, and just and just takes out people yep. like Levy. You know, like these people that have got optimized Eternals and stuff without their ability to trigger it. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Now, the other one you mentioned too, Peter, is the High River. Um, you mentioned it had Blast. Um, is there anything other else important on that card? So it hands out Burning, um, which is sort of, a, it's basically a small bonus. Not much of the crew actually utilizes the Burning particularly. Um, but yeah, it basically does, a, it's got a three minimum damage, which is why it's uh, sort of the sort of the beat style one, whereas the, 
the Drunken Rave kick has sort of a, a one three five damage track, so it's quite varied in what you've what you you know what damage you do. The uh, the Flaming Dragon kick has a three four five sure. blast on severe. Yeah. So it it just kind of depends what situation you you find yourself in. Um, the High River style also gives you uh, ruthless, so it's really good against those sort of terrifying uh, models where you can just basically ignore that and come in for your min damage three attack. And, and to tie into something that you already said, Peter, is its key is that even with terrifying checks, he could use the chi to, to bump up his results there too, right? Yeah, exactly. So if you if you just miss their uh, their target number, you can just burn your chi, take yourself over it. And that's, I think, one of the sort of the lesser realized uses of chi. It's like the simple jewels as well. Shockwave attacks when people sort of throw out movement checks or sort of that kind of stuff. You can use it on that as well to just tip yourself over the balance rather than having to cheat in one of your cards. Yeah, when there's only 13 values and you're able to adjust things by two, um, I mean, that's a, that's a big adjustment. Yeah, I, I find quite a few times it really is. It, it's, it stops that really frustrating thing you have when you sort of, you've just missed the target number or you've just missed uh, you know, passing a jewel, a simple jewel, and normally thinking, oh, now I've got to burn a card and cheat something in. Um, whereas in this case, it's like, no, I'll just you know use the chi, move myself over the target number and move on. Yeah. Now, um, he's flying all over the table. He's got uh, two different styles that are allowing him to do damage based off of whatever the particular situation is. Uh, what's keeping Shen alive? So there's a number of things. So fairly straightforward, he's hard to kill. So you've got to, you're going to take at least uh, that last wound off on its own. Um, he's also got a nice sort of, possibly corner case, but ability called Sacred Ink. So if anyone tries to put a condition on him, uh, he can basically uh, burn a chi and ignore it, not take it. Nice. Um, the big the big advantage is you don't get the condition. So a lot of the masters like Jackdaw or people that have, have an ability to stop you from removing it. So the way the Sacred Ink works, you never get it to begin with. Right. So Jack can't keep it pinned on you. Um, that's, that's sort of the other sort of really strong one. And then the other big thing that obviously helps him keep alive is low river style. So when you get onto low river style, it comes the the action built onto that rather than being attack action is a heal, um, and it's a heal for two, three, four. That's which nice. Is obviously re- which is obviously really strong, yeah. Especially when you might remember that the aspiring students can pick it up as well, right? So all of a sudden, these two stone you know totems you've got for free are throwing out uh, two, three, four heals, uh, needing only a seven to go off. God, that's good. Which obviously, which obviously becomes a five because they could burn a chi to do it. Yep, yep, and and they're getting their chi when they activate. Yeah, so yeah, like everybody else, they're, they're picking one chi up for, uh, when they activate. So for their bonus action, they can throw out these heals onto Shenlong. Um, so if if you haven't sort of alpha struck him so far forward, and, and the students are nearby, um, and they you know you flip onto low river style, there's a lot of healing that the crew can put out just from those three models alone. That's nice. All right. I think we've made the listeners wait long enough. Let's hear this. Get uh, get Shen up to five chi trick in turn one. Basically, rolls around half his crew beating him up himself. <laughs> so effectively, the aspiring students uh, will start in base contact with uh, Shen Long, um, and they'll activate first. And for both their two AP, they'll basically punch him. So their attack action um, only does one one two damage. So you're pretty much only going to basically put four damage on Shen Long during the course of these four AP. Um, each type, for each first damage that he gets inflicted as he activates, um, Sensei Yu hands out a Chi to him. So the first student will give him two damage and a Chi. 
second second student will give them two damage and a chi. Um, but then the also really nice thing about them is the, their attack hands out distracted. Oh, nice. Normally, normally a downside, obviously, but the moment he flips into uh, drunken kung fu, sort of on the drunken river style, um, those negatives and distracted become positives. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you, you're basically throwing a positive to attack. Um, so typically after the first two activations as a crew, Shenlong will be sitting there on two two or three chi, because again, the students have an ability to transfer a chi from one model to another model. Oh, wow. So the second student will basically transfer one of the chi that the first student picks up onto Shenlong as well. So two activations into the first turn, Shenlong will generally be sitting on three chi, uh, four distracted, and having lost four wounds. Um, but that's that sort of really begins to set him up um, and then obviously you can use other people to beat on him as well if you need to, to basically keep increasing his chi and potentially distracted because a, a number of the crew do hand out distracted on their attacks. Yeah. What's interesting to me about that is that, you know, uh, there's a lot of masters out there where you kind of have these turn one tricks. Uh, McMorning has it, uh, you know, what you just talked about. I think what's interesting about this is a lot of times that those turn one tricks can involve a lot of uh, complicated models and expensive models, whereas here you're really only involving the totems. Yeah, I mean, there's obviously, an eight, there's a, obviously a nine point model stood nearby to give them that cheese. They sense say you. It's not using any of his AP to do it though, so right. he's still fully there, fully there to activate. Yeah, yeah. There's, he, he's not using any of his actions. Yeah, exactly. It's just basically being there in their presence. Uh, it, does, it does tend to use a, a low river monk immediately afterwards, obviously, to try and heal up the damage you put onto Shenlong. It's not, it's not essential, but I tend to find that the, the, the healing from the, uh, the low river monk can normally just top it back up to full again before he starts going in for his sort of aggressive combat attacks. Right. So a question for you, um, when he switches styles, you said that the monks of that same style get focused, right? Yeah, they do. Yeah. Do, do you find yourself switching styles just for that? Or is that just kind of a side benefit? I think that's very much a side benefit. Um, you really have to pay attention to what Shenlong's situation is um, and see what style he needs, or maybe you need the students to have for him to, you know, to, to, to go to, um, especially since, Unfortunately, the fermented river monks aren't very strong, so, mm-hmm. they, so they don't tend to feature in the crew very often. God, yeah. Um, it's just basically it's a nice bonus. And there's probably every certain, you know, once in a blue moon where actually you think, I'm going to deliberately shift into that style because I want those monks to get the, the bonus rather than actually because I want Shenlong to be in that style. Right, right. Now that makes sense. So, Peter, we got a, uh, we got a question from one of our listeners, Paul Butler. Um, he has got a, a question about Chi. I'm going to go ahead and play it. What do you guys think of how effective Chi is as a balancing mechanism for the Shenlong crew? So, so what I think Paul is asking there is, um, do you think Chi is is limiting enough that um, it prevents the monk crew from, you know, being too powerful, or do you, or do you think there's a balance issue related to Chi? I think everybody but Shenlong, definitely. Uh, like I say, you, you'll typically only ever see. Most of the monks wandering around with maybe one or two uh, chi on them. If they've got to sort of three or four, it's probably because they've had a, a relatively uncontested time um, on the board. Again, when you know if, if the opponent starts beating up on people, then Sensei Yu will start giving them bonus chi from that point of view. But I tend to find the rest of the monks will only have one or two chi, which they'll burn quite frequently. Um, so it's, it's reasonably sort of fair from their point of view. 
Shen Long is the one who tends to get a lot of chi. Um, but obviously then he's a master, so it's like right. How yeah? How much? How much more can he? How much more benefit should he get from that? Yep. So yeah, I don't think I don't think it's I think it's a powerful keyword. Um, I don't think it's the most powerful keyword. I think some of the other um, masters have sort of more powerful abilities on all of their cards. But I think it's probably certainly up there in the sort of the top tier of keyword abilities. Well, and uh, and you know, basically having listened to what you've been saying, you know, there's things that are very unique about Shen Long, and you know, I've got to tell you, as a Rezzer player who you know everything has hard to wound. He's a nightmare, an absolute oh. nightmare for me. Um, but, you know, and, you know, like Molly, I'd hate to see Shenlong into Molly. I've never done that. But, um, you know, it sounds like uh, those niche situations where those just really bad matchups um, can can kind of generate that uh, the crying that we've been hearing. Yeah, I think um, anyone with a demise trigger. Uh, they don't like playing. I mean, they don't, they don't like playing it to ten thunders at the best of times. But yep. Shenlong, because he's got that gun um, attack with a with an anti demise trigger, and then again because if he's in the drunken kung fu style, he'll be flipping all his negatives into positives, and he'll be probably landing the three or even the four blast damage that that gun attack does. It's so easy for him to basically, you know, take out um, dem- models that rely on their demise trigger as their sort of uh, counter masters, like you say. He, the amount of damage he puts down, especially on the hard-to-kill people, um, that's what sort of gets him this reputation of being this alpha strike beater. Yep, yep. And that mobility is nasty, man. Um, so, and I think that, uh, especially if you don't know what's coming, that could be uh, quite a quite an ice bath. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's certainly one of the things I will always tell an opponent, if they've never played Shen Long, um, it's one of the sort of things I will say, you know, you have let them know what kind of threat range he's got because you don't really want to get someone to gotcha moment of when Shenyang yeah. comes hurtling across the board 22 inches and punches their master in the face. Yeah, definitely. Well, that I think that gives us kind of a good idea, Peter, of uh, you know what Shenlong does, what his role is. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to take a quick break. When we get back from the break, I want to talk a little bit more about the rest of the monks and uh, kind of talk about your core crew. So we'll be right back. All right, so we've got nice damage output. We've got some really hard counters uh, coming from Sensei U. I think that um, that's only part of the picture, though. So let's talk a little bit more about the Monk crew. And before we dive into your core crew, Peter, uh, we've got some actually some interesting questions from the audience um, that are related to kind of crew building. Uh, this first one, first one is uh, from one of our listeners, Brian. Hi, folks. Shenlong and the Monks seem like a really flexible and versatile crew. The one thing they seem to be missing is a hard-hitting beater. If you were going to take this crew into something like Reckoning, would you go out of keyword for additional damage? If so, who would you look at? And if not, who's your main beater inside the monastery? Thanks. I enjoy the show. So, obviously, we've got Shen Long as, as a beater when it needs be. Uh, but uh, is there anything else that's putting out damage? I think it depends on the sort of level of damage you want. So, outside of Reckoning, where... You know, you want some damage, but maybe not a sort of hardcore damage. Then the High River Monks um, and also Thunder Archers, which are both sort of keyword, they, they're sort of like a medium level of beta. But for something specific like Reckoning, then I do tend to go out keyword to pick up sort of the, the classic beaters from the uh, Ten Thunders. So you're talking uh, Shadow Emissary, 
uh, in my case, Shadow Emissary and Yasunori are the two that I generally bring in to sort of cover that really sort of hardcore beta aspect that uh, complements Shenlong in a Reckoning crew. Yeah, from the from from a versatile model standpoint, you you have no shortage of beaters in Ten Thunders. We do have a fair few, yeah. So the Last Swordsman as well kind of fits into that sort of mid-range beta, but it's just beginning to encroach into what I consider to be like a reckoning sort of level of beta. But the Emissary and, and Yasunori are two really strong, uh, versatile models. And if you, obviously, if you want to go to the extreme, you can start going into the other keywords and start picking out some of the henchmen and stuff that the other crews have. But why pay the extra tax when you've got such good, strong beaters in versatile? Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask if you've ever gone out of keyword, but you know, I think it would be hard. You'd be hard pressed to pay that tax with such good versatile beaters. For beaters, yeah, I go out keyword in other areas, but for for the beaters, it's, it's basically Shenlong and a couple, you know, one or two of the versatile models, depending on how much um, damage I need to throw out based on the strats and schemes. Now, are you? Do you find yourself hiring either of them in something other than reckoning? Um, do you feel like he's even in other c- scenarios that uh, you need that extra damage output? I do tend to hire at least one of them, um, just because I found that if you only got one sort of threat vector, your opponent, most opponents' crews I find have two sort of beaters, yeah. um, and so I find that you need to sort of reciprocate that with two yourself. Um, so I do tend gen to hire Yasunori um, on a fairly regular basis, um, but if the pool is particularly very heavy scheming and that kind of stuff, then I could just basically like go for these sort of the mid-range beaters and bring in. Um, Thunder Archers or the, the High River Monks because they have they have got quite a good damage output, but maybe not quite on the level of Yasnori or uh, uh, the Emissary. Right, right. No, that makes that makes a ton of sense. Um, and you're you're right, Peter. I've noticed that I have been trying to have two two damage vectors in my crews um, for the exact reason I think you hinted at is without that, then I would imagine you're expecting uh, too much focus on Shenlong. Yeah, they basically. They will basically target him with as much aggro as they can, um, unless you've got a second vector which you can bring in, um, either to go off into a flank and start harassing some of their scheme, you know, their scheme runners or stuff, while Shenlong plows into the crew or vice versa. I think right. those two vectors just give you that little bit of versatility and effectively that sort of divide and conquer mentality, where you can portion up their crew and say one beat is going into one section and one beat goes into the other section. Yeah, that makes sense to me. So, Peter, we got another question. Uh, this one is from another listener, Chris Miller, and uh, it's related to um, good old Sensei Yu. So let's hear what Chris has to say. Hello, this is Chris from Rock Hill, South Carolina. My question for you is, how do you feel about Sensei Yu in a monk crew? In second edition, his utility made him an auto-include for me, and now I find that I'm adding him immediately to every list I write. But looking back at the games I've played, he never really accomplished anything for me. Do you still think he's an auto-include? And when you do bring him, what role are you looking for him to fill? Thank you. Now, we've already talked about what you're doing with him turn one to really build up that chi. Uh, but are you finding yourself in the same position Chris is, where you might have a little bit of hiring regret at the end of a game? Generally speaking, not. Um, I mean, so like we said, the... the uh, that first turn um, shenanigan where we're sort of pumping the chi and the uh, distracted onto Sensei Yu, sorry, onto Shen Long. Sensei Yu isn't actively taking a part in, so he's not spending any of his, uh, his actions to do it. And I do find that he's got some really useful um, abilities and actions on himself as well. So the, the really obvious one is his bonus action, which allows him to take the chi off one particular monk and give them fast. 
oh, that's nice. So you're talking fast thunder archers, or you're talking fast high river monks, um, or potentially even low river monks. You know, just that, just that ability to drop their chi um, down by one um, and give them fast is really powerful. Um, he's obviously lost the ability that he had in M2E to pick up the styles that Shenlong casts off, um, which I think is what, it was what he's most famous for and why he was an auto-include uh, in M2E. Um, but he still has sort of a wind blast attack, so he can still push models around. Um, you know, he's got this uh, a simple lesson, it's called, it gives models fast. Um, and I also find he's got a really nice built-in trigger on his attack, um, which lets him basically draw two cards and then discard a card. So he's, he's got that card cycling and card draw mechanic as well for you. How much does he cost? Uh, he is nine. So he is, oh, you know, okay. it's, a, it's a reasonably priced. He's not, it's not the most expensive henchman, but I think, yeah, for that first turn, he's, he's an absolute necessity for that first turn to, to make sure you ramp up the chi on, on Shen Long. Um, I mean, I do, I do find that he, he just brings versatility as well, just by his sort of the auras. So as well as that aura that gives him, um, allows you to once per activation gain a chi if you take damage, um, he's also got another aura which allows you to take the concentrate action. Um, you're allowed to discard a card and, and take a concentrate action as a bonus action. Nice. Um, especially since one of the one of the aspects of the, the chi mechanic is when you take the concentrate action, you can either choose to gain focus or you can choose to gain chi. So it's, a, it's another vector again where if he's nearby and the models of you, you've got a you know a low card in hand, you'll just discard it. One of the models will, will concentrate and just increase their chi pool again. I got to tell you, Peter, what's overwhelming, just what we've covered so far, is how flexible and how many options you have with this crew. I mean, it seems like everything you talk about, you say you can do this or you can do that, or you can do this. And it's situational. You have full agency on your side to decide this is, would be better for the situation or not for the situation. Not only with Shen Long, but everything you just talked about with Sensei Yu. Um, it's impressive. And I think that's also, that's, that's the, the, the dynamic and sort of versatility once you started the game. Um, the sheer array of sort of the monks you can pick from they're yeah. very good at they're very good at counterpicking their masters. So the moment the opponent declares that master information to you, there are certain you know the thunder archers, the charm warders, the lotus eaters. They all have versatility in different aspects of masters, um, and you can really start counterpicking against um, you know demise triggers or defensive triggers or people who put out destructible terrain. Yeah, and then also the scheme pool as well. You know, if it's a heavy scheme marker one, you it it will help you craft the, the sort of the crew around Shen Long primarily based on the strat schemes and opponent. So I'm getting the feeling then, Peter, that, that the core crew for Shen Long for you is, is not as many stones as it might be for another master. No, it literally is. Shen Long, obviously, two students, Sensei Yu, and then Low River Monk. That's, mm -hmm. probably, that's probably the only the sort of the auto-include sort of core that comes into every single game. Um, everything else is then determined by strat schemes and the opponent's master. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, so can you give me some kind of some top level uh, hard counters? I mean, the, uh, you know, obviously the demise, um, you've got, uh, well, you got Levy, you've got um, McCabe. Who else are you bringing anti-demise into? So Levy's the really, obviously the really obvious one. Um, with only sort of, you know, I think it's only got sort of seven or eight wounds and that demise trigger. Um, if you take care of that demise trigger, it really does hamper him. And again, because Shen Long's got that anti-demise attack on his ranged, he can quite easily um, kill Levy just by using that alone. But if you think you're going to face a, a really high um, sort of demise crew, then yeah, you bring in Charm Warders as well. 
that gives you another vector sort of to to shut down that uh, that trigger. And, it, and they obviously have it on an, on an aura, so they don't actually need to be directly involved in the fight. They can right. uh, just be standing nearby. Um, so the, the main ones, obviously, Levy's the, the really big one. Yan Lo, uh, I mean, Yan Lo himself doesn't have, he does have a uh, demise trigger, but obviously his crew quite heavily draws on those demise triggers. Yep. Um, Lucas McCabe, obviously for the episode he's recently done, um, there's no getting off his horse for him. If you've, if you've got a charm order stood nearby, he just dies. Um, and you do have like Hamlin as well. So again, you shut off his ability to use his stolen to keep himself alive when, uh, when you take him down to zero wounds. So there, there are a number of masters that do have that. And then there's obviously that, the extension of the crews. Um, and if you know that it's like, like the bad jujus of the world and like that, have that demise eternal trigger. Yep. Yep. That makes sense. Now, um, so, you know, that covers kind of the demise. You also mentioned, you know, m- marker removal uh, or hinted at it. So things, you know, things like uh, Karis and Rasputina and stuff. W- what's the hard counter on them? So the Lotus Eaters, uh, which is another minion, uh, they've basically got an ability on the on the front of their card, uh, which at the end of their, this model's activation, they can push up to three inches towards uh, a marker within three, um, and then they remove the marker. Uh, and they also get to heal from that. Nice. So that's really that's really powerful because it doesn't say um, you know it, you can't do it on the strategy markers annoyingly you can't take out the cursed idols um, but you can basically even if it, even if it's not described as being destructible um, right. this literally says a marker um, so Keris's pyre markers you know Rasputin's pillars they can basically if they get near to one they'll just push towards it remove the marker and it's a nice little bonus they'll pick up a bit of a heal themselves as well. So, so the list of masters that really hate Shen Long is getting longer uh, as we talk, Peter. Um, can you give me uh, can you give me a couple other uh, kind of hard counters that we should watch out for? So the other one is actually on an upgrade. Um, so uh, one of the Ten Thunders upgrades uh, is Mast Agents, um, and what that basically does is it uh, again puts a six inch order out that shuts down defensive triggers. Oh. So now all of a sudden, Lady J who is normally quite sort of uh, happy with her sort of, you know, counter-attack if someone comes nearer, will find Shen Long come screaming across the table, uh, start wailing on her, and he's turned off her defensive trigger. Uh, so there's a whole list of masters that have, obviously, defensive triggers quite often built into their cards, and yep. a, lot of them, a lot of them mostly use them as, as a means to survive. So um, Zip, Zip won't be placing anywhere. Um, you know, he'll Colette. Colette. Colette, yeah, yeah, she's really forced down to it. Um, you're also talking, um, you know, the sort of the like, like Claire, Clarkson, Claire, Ironsides doesn't get to punch you back. Um, Karius doesn't get to set you on fire. Um, and because it's an aura, obviously Shenlong can come in, start laying the beat down. And if another beater comes in as well, those defensive triggers have been turned off just permanently. Um, so good. Yeah. And because obviously an, an upgrade, you can put it. So I, I tend to actually, if I have two beaters, I tend to put one each and I know I'm facing like, as uh, you know, as a rider or a Colette or someone who's, especially if they've got the masses who really rely on their defensive triggers to keep them alive. Um, and that's when Yasunori will also pick up that upgrade. Um, yep. and, and the pair of them will basically just double team whatever they need to, um, safe from knowledge that they can't be sort of defensive triggered res- responded to. Now, is there any other uh, upgrades that you're bringing in? Um, I mean, that has a very specific purpose, right? It's um, Is there uh, any other 10 Thunder upgrades that you find useful? Yeah, so the Mast Agent um, one actually has another little trick as well. So it's got a, it's got a charge with me ability. Um, so effectively, when a model with this upgrade on it charges, um, before they charge, they nominate another model within three inches. They make the charge, and as long as they end their charge uh, engage with the model, 
it can move that first nominate model into base contact with it. Nice. Um, so one of the things I find that's really tricks you with is we're going with the charm orders. So Yasunori, you know, he's got like quite a, he's got a quite a long range uh, stone inch charge. So he tends to get the massed agent upgrade sometimes. And what will happen is he'll move close to a charm order. He'll then charge, say, Leviticus and drag the charm order with him. Yep. So, all of, so all of a sudden, Leviticus, who's feeling relatively safe because the charm order is six inches away from him, um, and therefore outside of his bubble, suddenly finds the charm order stood next to him just before Yasunori starts wailing on him. It was so hard about that from the opponent's point of view is that, you know, a lot of times we, we come up with those combos, right? We're like, if I get this and I get that or near it and, and it takes some setup, whereas you're talking about it just happening in, in one activation. Yeah, exactly. So the charm order is, you know, moved forward, you know, vaguely towards uh, Leviticus and potentially drawn Leviticus out because I have certainly find that if you take charm orders into these masters with demise triggers, they will go after the charm order, you know, fairly aggressively because of they want to shut it down. Yeah. And like I say, all of a sudden, another big beta. So, you know, it could be Yasunori. It's, it's really powerful on the beats that have flight. So obviously Yasunori and the, uh, the Shadow Emissary can leap from, you know, behind cover, behind solid walls and just drag that charm order along with them for the uh, demise trigger. Oh, it's so good. It, it is. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you do. <laughs> so, um, and I'm, I think I know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Do you find yourself hiring another master into a Shenlong crew? So, no. And I think a lot of the sort of uh, UK players have said this, that most of the tournaments here aren't allowing it. Yeah. Uh, so even in sort of friendly games, I don't tend to to do it because I, I, we don't need the practice because we don't we're not going to face it generally in, in tournaments. Um, so it, it tends to be uh, Shenlong on his own. But I, I also am starting to get the feeling though that that he is one of those masters that has such strong synergies within the keyword that um, it would be hard to spend you know sixteen stones to have an out of keyword master. Yeah, so on the, in the Reckoning style crew, when I, when I tend to take the uh, Emissary and Yasunori, I do sometimes find myself running low on monks. Yeah. Um, especially since, you know, Sensei Yu's abilities and from a Shenlong's abilities, specifically say friendly monk. Um, and you, so, you know, that ability to make people fast, um, the ability that Sensei Yu has, well, sorry, that Shenlong has to basically make another friendly monk, either take the concentrate action or take one of their bonus actions for free. Those things always say friendly monks. So, if you do sort of end up spending, like I say, 16 stones on a master, um, you've got less monks to trigger it off. Yep, yep, that makes sense. And I would imagine the reverse is true that um, he, I, well, actually, I don't know. I mean, do you think, and again, I know you guys in the UK aren't doing this, but do you think that he's a good hire for uh, another leader? Uh, he could, I mean, yeah, because obviously, I think the problem would be is you wouldn't get the students, you wouldn't get, you know, all this, all that versatility. Drunken, sort of the, the drunken river style, the fermented river style, even is is strong, um, even without the uh, ability to switch distracted um, into negatives. It obviously means if you know if you've got the serene countenances or the um, the abilities that give you negatives on your attacks, it's it's useful. Um, but I don't tend to. I think in ten suns it tends to be the likes of McCabe that gets brought in if anybody is going to be right dual mastering. Um, the only one I've thought of, I've never actually managed to pull it off yet, is uh, against Zoraida, when you basically just take four masters. <laughs> We've talked about that here in North Carolina. <laughs> Nobody's done it yet. Let's <laughs> like say the problem is, whenever I go to tournaments, they always ban, uh, they ban dual master. So the idea of dropping Shen and McCabe, <laughs> Asami, and Masaki onto somebody, 
Um, I just find that I find that be hilarious to watch them realize that there's just, there's just nobody that they can obey. Right. <laughs> no, I've, we've talked about it. I'm going to, one of these days, I've just got to get one of the guys to try it out because I want to see it happen. Uh, I've seen three masters. Uh, we have a guild player here locally that'll uh, do three masters, but I've never seen four. <laughs> yeah, and I think guild have probably got the best spread of masters to do that because obviously, you know, they've got the puncher and they've got the shooter and then they've got, they can have a support master as well. Whereas I think certainly the 10 thunders tends to be a lot more keyword specific. Yeah. Um, and therefore, other than, say McCabe's army as a combination I've seen a couple of times. I think they, they tend to stick to their own type. Yeah, no, I agree. Now, we talked about Yasunori. We talked about the Emissary. Is there any other versatile models um, that are making it into a good number of your crews? So versatile, the only other one I've seen sometimes make is Lone Swordsman. Again, just because if I want to say, if I, want, if I need a second attack vector, but I don't think it needs to be a sort of a real heavy hitter, um, the, the Lone Swordsman does have a, a sort of a, that mid-range beta um, that I have taken into a few crews. Um, but other than that, it tends to just be those two versatile. And how about out of keyword? So the only out of keyword I do hire, and I do hire it a lot, is the Huckster. Um, and I think it's just because it's just a, such a strong scheme runner. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it can teleport around the board fairly easily. Um, and another trick, which I don't think any of your, uh, your two guests mentioned on the, uh, on the podcast when you were covering them, is you give it the uh, trained ninja and it, it gains from the shadows. So on turn one, it's already deployed, especially on the, on the likes of corner and flank, it's already deployed in the enemy's deployment zone, tucked right into the corner. It can't take any interact actions, but that's uh, false claims, not an interact, so it can still throw out scheme markers. Right. God, that's dirty. Yeah, I've, I've had games before <laughs> where literally he'll, he'll set up um, you know, the likes of uh, search the ruins or you know those kind of things by the end of turn one or two he's already thrown out the ski markers he needs and can potentially have a retreat back or you've got Shen Long who's got the speed to basically come and support him so if you do think that they are sending a beater towards him right. Shen Long comes screaming in and at which point a lot of people change their mind as to whether or not that's a priority anymore yep no, that's that's good. I, you know what? It's funny. I not would not have thought about that, but it makes a ton of sense. So, uh, how much are hucksters? Uh, they are. Oh, I remember that they are six in keywords, so seven to us. All right. So, so they end up being nine with the upgrade. Yeah. So they are expensive, but yep. they can. I mean, like I say, if the scheme pool is very scheme heavy, so if it's got a lot of, uh, certainly if it's got the um, power ritual in there. If you've got if you've got detonate the charges, they are just unbelievably strong at doing detonate the charges. Um, that teleport and place two ski markers, and you've basically caught a model completely napping. Yeah. But search the ruins, ley line. They are just you know if you've got two or three of those schemes in there, one hooks that can single handedly do it, and probably have it done, score the first point, and have it set up um, for the final turn by the end of turn three, just on their own. Yeah, that's good. That's good. I mean, if they're scoring you two points, that's worth nine, right? Yeah. And when they score you four, it's even better. Yep. No, I agree. I agree. So I think that kind of gives us, uh, Peter, a good idea of, you know, how you're, how you're building that crew. We got it. We kind of talked about how you're building crews based off of what's declared on the other side. What I want to do is take another quick break. And when we get back from this break, I want to talk about how you're building crews based off of what you're seeing in the pool. We'll be right back.
Howdy friends, Craig here. With 3rd Edition Malifaux released, it's time for you to get a new mat with new deployment zones. We've tried every mat in the business and nobody has better quality and selection than Mats by Mars. They're waterproof and they roll and unroll easily and they're even wet erase Marco compatible. They offer over 35 designs and let you add M3E overlays for making deployment and positioning a breeze. Check them out at matsbymars.com. They are offering a sweet discount for our listeners. After you found the perfect mat, use the promo code THIRDFLOOR to get 10% off your entire order. If you really want to support us in the notes of your order, request that our logo be put in the corner of your mat. It's the only way to make the best mat in the business even cooler. Again, that's Matt by Mars. Use the promo code third floor to get a 10% discount. Details are in the show notes. Okay, so we've got uh, we got four different strategies, Peter. Um, and what I'm finding with a lot of people that I'm doing these deep dives with is the the keyword that they're talking about has really one strategy that it really shines in. So for Shenlong, is there one strategy that makes you immediately think Shenlong? I think, ironically, I don't think there is. Um, I mean, he's strong. He's stronger at certain ones, and he's a little bit weaker at the other ones. But I think that versatility versatility of the crew he can hire. Means he can he can do a reasonably good job of all four of them. Um, yeah, the, the wandering river monks are obscenely fast, and so they can, you know the plant explosives um, and the corrupted idols. They can really you know shoot out from their deployment zones quickly. Reckoning, obviously, he's an awesome beater. You need to bring in some other beaters, but he can do. I think he can do all four of them basically. Well, let's talk about reckoning for a second. Um, how fragile are these monks? I mean, is are, are they a liability in reckoning? They can be a little bit. So they do obviously have their chi that they can use defensively. Um, so most of them are a sort of a willpower defense five. Um, but for obviously for like one or maybe two attacks, you can jack them up to a seven um, or even an eight because of that chi. But that's why when I tend to do reckoning crews, you bring in two of those versatile beaters, just lowering the number of, of monks a little bit um, and trying to keep them a little bit protected because certainly the, the sort of the sort of more schemey monks, so the Lotus Eaters, the Low River Monks, and the, wand- and, the, and the Wandering River Monks, they are quite easy to take out. Mm-hmm. They've only got sort of four, four or five wounds. So I think if you are having to hire them because of what's in the scheme pool, you've really got to keep, you know, pay attention to them and make sure they don't get taken out. Yeah, and they're going to be the low-hanging fruit for that first or second point in reckoning on your opponent's side. So I, I, that w- I think that would take some serious positioning uh, expertise on your side. Yeah, you certainly don't want to overcommit with them, basically. So if you certainly the, with the Wandering River Monks, um, you know, they've got like a 20-inch range in total on their first turn. So if you shoot one of those forward, you'll just lose it. So I imagine, Peter, that really takes some uh, advanced thought on your part, right, to, to be able to position those threats and get those vectors right so that those as juicy as those monks might look in a Reckoning crew, uh, you're going to make them you know, really deter that. Yeah, you're basically relying on the fact that your opponent thinks, well, if I send one of my beaters in, yeah, I'll score the reckoning points, I'll kill the wandering river monk, but then Shen Long will come plowing along and kill you know, whatever he's just sent into that crew. So you can do in that fear of trade-off. Do they yep. really want to lose one of their beaters for you losing one of your uh, you know, one of your wandering river monks? Yeah, that's a trade you'd make all day, right? Oh, I'd love it, yeah. I'd, I'd happily take off rogue necromancies and the likes of that, and you know, if all I lose is a, is a low river monk or a wandering river monk. Yeah, I can see that. So how about uh, something like Corrupted Idols? Um, what, what, what are some tech pieces you're bringing into that strat? So I think with the Corrupted Idols, um, you're obviously using the the, yeah, the the Wandering River Monks potentially to get out there. Um, 
because of the, especially on the sort of the corner style deployments where the idols can appear so far away from your deployment zone, the wandering of monks really do have to speed to get there in the first turn. Um, but you know the other advantage you've got is because of the uh, low river monk, because of the sort of the wandering river style, you've got the healing so that when they push the uh, idols, you know, two or three inches away if needs be, they've got that ability to heal themselves back up again. Um, the lotus eaters as well, obviously with their built-in heal um, when they push to markers, um, is another one that can do that push and then heal up from somewhere else. Yeah, that's helpful. Now, when you're playing Corrupted Idols, do you find yourself kind of spreading out and trying to cover all the bases, or do you tend to focus on one side or the other and then maybe control where the idols get dropped? I tend to go for the sort of aggressive control of initiative. Um, I'll pick a side, I'll send um, you know, most of my crew that down that side and then just aggressively try and keep the idols appearing in that in that side. The problem I found is it can sort of be a an all or nothing kind of scenario. So yep. if you start losing control of the initiative because you're having to cheat first and they simply cheat higher, um, you can end up finding that the idols are appearing, you know, in the opposite side of the board. And if all your sort of concentrated firepower is in one side, you, you end up losing it. But that's what I tend to do. I tend to go for the especially on the corner style ones, I tend to go for the, I'm going to focus on one corner and try and make everything drop out of it in that corner, just off that corner or possibly in the centre. Right. I think I think on standard, you can you can play it a little bit more sort of open and flexible because it's, the, it's such a narrow line that they're appearing on. Um, but the diagonal ones, I think, yeah, you try, if you try and give a, cover both corners, you, you'll end up losing a weaker corner to, to the opposition crew anyway. So, so for Turf War, Peter, are you focusing more on resiliency or speed? So I think on Turf War, it's, a, it's again, it's a combination of, um, from the actual sort of scheme point of view, so strategy point of view, Shen Long and another beta trying to get into their side of the board and really put the pressure on them um, on their side of the board. So the slightly weaker monks are hanging back on their own side, um, potentially near to the, the Turf markets in case they need to reflip them, but trying to stay out of trouble. And you're really trying to put the pressure on them so as quickly as possible you're flipping their markers back to neutral again by killing, again, potentially some of their weaker models or, you know, in the case of Shenlong, pretty much anybody he wants to mm-hmm. um, on their half of the board. So it, it tends to be the speed of the beaters um, and the sort of slightly slower support guys can hang back a little bit. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, uh, I, I, we're not going to go through all the schemes, but I would love to know, is there certain schemes that you just love to see when you know you're bringing Shenlong? So depending on what the match they've declared, uh, assassinate. Um, because Shenlong is, I've, I found Shenlong is quite capable of killing, you know, a large number of the masters in potentially one one round of combat if he gets all three activations onto onto that model. Um, there are a couple of masters uh, or a couple of key sort of te- defensive technologies he can't get past. But you know, if you've taken the likes of Colette, if you've taken the likes of Zoraida, um, you know, Lady J. Leviticus, and you've taken one of those into an assassinate game, I will take assassinate. Yep. Uh, and I also won't be afraid to basically go, I'm only going to score one point from it because I am going to beat down your master on turn two. Uh, mm-hmm. not, not worry about that. So assassinate, yeah, if, assuming they haven't got one of the sort of the few sort of counter technologies that does sort of defeat Shenlong's attacks, I'll take that all the time. Um and then a lot of the scheme marker ones, so the search, the ruins, the power rituals, and those kind of ones. Um, combination, obviously, of the hucksters, which is not a keyword one, but the charm, uh, the uh, wandering river monks are really strong. Um, there's also a really little devious trick on wandering river style. So, especially on something like uh, the ley lines one. So if you think your opponent's running it as well, so 
the Wandering River style attack um, has sort of a, that sort of classic sort of push mechanic, but as well as pushing the model um, up to six inches, you can pick up um, three up to three strategy uh, price scheme corpse or scrap markers. Oh. You push the model and then you put them back down again. Now, what's really nasty about that is the rules state that when you place a marker, the marker is friendly to you. So yep. you can pick, so you can pick up your enemy scheme markers, push them, and drop them, and they become your scheme markers. So if your if your opponent has loaded up, um, you know, all his scheme markers on on the, on the center line for ley lines, you can literally walk one of your own models in between two of them, push your own model, so you, he relents. So there's no you know there's no duel required. Pick up those two scheme markers and flip them to <laughs> themselves and put them back down again. And there's no, there's no, there's no contested flip in that entire process. Yeah, if you're pushing one of your own models, there's no contested flip. If there's not, you know, if, if or if needs be, you have to obviously go uh, and use potentially the model just drop the marker. Yeah. Um, but again, it's a stat six. The cheat can make it a stat eight. If, oh. you're, if you're holding a twelve or thirteen in hands, nothing they can do. They'll, you know, they'll lose some of their markers. Dig their graves as well. The second point from dig their graves is quite funny watching your opponent. You know, very carefully put all these scheme markers next to corpse and scraps for you to basically come along, blow them, a little, you know, blow them, and just simply flip them over to being your markers instead. Yeah. Oh boy, that's that, <laughs> that's 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 pretty grim. But I think that's good uh, for people to know um, when they're facing Shenlong, right? Um, that these are maybe these are some schemes that he does really well and he counters really well, um, and and you should you should think accordingly. Yeah, I think basically the scheme-based market, uh, scheme-based sorry, the scheme market-based schemes uh, are quite nasty ones to take into Shenlong because not only, not only have you got Shenlong doing that, but you've got Thunder Archers, um, and one of their um, abilities can basically lift up a scheme marker from potentially twenty inches away. Mm-hmm. So again, if you're dropping, you know, if you've got the lights of breakthrough, um, especially, I find quite often that when people lay out terrain, for, especially for tournaments. They tend to make the, the sort of standard deployment area at the back of the boards quite light on the terrain, and they tend to focus the terrain in the middle where they think all the action is going to take place. Um, and what that means is that the you, the deployment zones are fairly open. Yeah. At which point, a, like a scheme like breakthrough is really hard to accomplish because all it'll take is for a thunder archer to be stood, you know, seventeen, eighteen inches away. And when you start dropping markers in in their deployment zone, the thunder archer will just stop shooting them off. Yep. So yeah, I think any, any scheme-based markers into Shenlong and, and the monks, you've you've got to be confident that you can either deal with those people that can remove them. Because again, the lotus eaters can do the same. There's, there's a lot of means in the crew to lift up scheme markers, um, and then with Shenlong blowing them around as well, it's it's, it's a dangerous tactic to deal with. Yeah, definitely. Um, and again, now we had we we extend that theme of flexibility. It sounds to me like. Uh, you know, once you know that pool, and once you've you know know the 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 opposing player, you've got a lot of tools to pull from, uh, both to accomplish and to counter. Yeah, and I think I say that's that's why it's the it's definitely the kind of crew you could not build a all comers list and say I'm going to take this into every pool because you do find that pools are pools, scheme mark, you know, scheme pools, strategies they all start driving your crew, what your opponent's master is. The keyword they associate. So, although the master might not have a demise trigger, is the crew famous for taking demise triggers? Um, they all sort of basically help you build the uh, the pool and you know, the, the scheme and crew that's going to help you achieve it. That's 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 very strong. All right, Peter. What we're going to do? We're going to take one more break, and when we get back from this break, I want to talk a little bit about uh, second level play and the part that everybody is we're excited about weaknesses and counters. So we'll be right back. 
Howdy folks, Craig here. Now if you love gadgets as much as we do, you're going to love the new Third Floor Wars Gadget Bundle from Schooner Labs. Branded with the logo of your favorite podcast, it comes with two measuring multi-tools, a compass stepper for those tight and important movements, along with a compact dashboard to track your turn, strat, and scheme scoring along with your soul stones and pass tokens. It is the perfect bundle for anyone who plays Malifaux or just wants to look cool while doing it. The link is in the show notes. Check them out and help support your favorite gaming podcast. Okay, so now we're at the point where we've decided there's basically only like one scheme that you can pick against Shenlong, and he's going to kill half your uh, crew come turn two or turn three. Um, I usually lead off here with uh, some second level play, but I don't think I can wait any longer, Peter. How do we, what is Shenlong afraid of? So I think I mentioned before, certainly from a master point of view, there's a couple of sort of pieces of technology that will just shut down his ability to kill them. Uh, The biggest one is protected. So if you've got one of the sort of like the likes of Hoffman as well, that way he's got protected from constructs, um, that really just shut down Shenlong's ability to kill your master. Uh, you'll obviously just throw the attacks off to all by nearby people. Um, so that's a, a key word. Also, the, the likes of Jack Daw, who can sort of, you know, so one of the big things that Shenlong is doing is because he's got that, that uh, fermented river style, he's, he's expecting to land sort of three to five damage on every single blow. Right. Um, and when Jack Daw simply takes down to a one pointer, or you know, if you can do some sort of heavy reduction on that kind of stuff, um, it will slow him down. Now he does have a trigger on on his sort of primary attack that makes the damage uh, irreducible. But again, if he's if he's having to use the rams to do that, he's not having to. Use, he's not got access to the onslaught to keep attacking over and over again. Yep. Uh, so again, armor one I found hasn't slowed him down too much, but certainly armor two that will really, you know, armor two on a sort of 12 wound model will pretty much mean he can't take him out in one go. Um, and you can mob him. Um, if you, if, when he comes screaming in and attacks a model, if he's gone into the center of someone's crew and you just pile into him, that sort of sustained damage and eventually he'll start running out of chi so he can't keep burning the chi and you will slowly beat him down. Yeah, I was going to ask that. I mean... And over a course of, say, 10 games, Peter, how often is he seeing turn, turn five for you? I would say pretty much most of the games he does. Um, the two that I know of, ironically, one of them was versus Paul Butler, um, when it was a Shenlong mirror match. Um, <laughs> so that was, that was basically three turns of being very cagey until, until someone Shenlong hit the other person Shenlong. Right. Um, and then Jack Daw. So again, you know, you try to go in, try and take Jack, take out Jack Daw, but he he survived the attack, and you know that many guilty and the hanged and Montressa, they always basically basically just dogpiled onto Shen Long um, and killed him. But a lot of times he will survive because of that hard to kill, and then and then the monks coming up and just healing him up really quickly. Now, here's the thought I had too. I mean, you know, when you do when you when we're talking theory foe, like we you know we're doing here right now, it, it seems like you know it, it, Shenlong at any point can have any one of his his uh, different styles, and it's always going to be the style you don't want him to have. Is there a way for the opponent to really kind of force you to pick a style that maybe uh, you wouldn't be ideal, but you have no choice; you need to go that way. So, the one that can force you into is is that low river style for the healing. Um, if, they've, if they've applied the pressure onto Shenlong before he's activated, um, he, he needs to swap 
not only because he needs to get um, potentially heal himself once or twice, but because he wants that style on him so that his students can come in and heal him as well. Right. So, so that potentially will slow him. If, if he is sort of, you know, aggressively trying to attack people, that might slow him down a turn as he's got to basically recoup all his wounds that you've basically beaten onto him. Other than that, I think it is basically the, the Shenlong player's choice. Yeah, yeah. Now, how about uh, sh- should we focus on the crew then? Sh- I mean, if I if I do, I just let Shen be Shen and then try to get rid of everything that's around him. So that's that's probably the way that I've I've lost the majority of my games. Is not because um, they try to take out Shen Long because they've managed to out maneuver the rest of the crew. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when you play Shen Long, you're pretty much going to have to come to the realization that the first thing he targets, he will kill. Um, he, you may be able to influence that by, like I say, taking certain te- defensive technologies or having certain amounts of armor and stuff. But, um, you know, it, when he sets his mind on either your master or your main beater or one of your sort of, you know, high cost models, there's a very good chance that he will just kill it. Um, and I think you basically got to sort of go adapt with that and then try and out scheme him. Shen Long himself cannot win a game. Right. He can, he can obviously score assassinate potentially. But then, if he's if he's forced to start, you know, putting down scheme markers or you know doing outflanks or something like that, it, he starts to struggle a little bit. It's his crew that tend to score, his crew score the points, and he tends to be the disruption. It's basically just you know either beating down the enemy crew or just trying to basically ruin their day by not allowing them into certain areas of the board, messing with their scheme markers. He's basically the distraction. Yep. And if you if you can sort of see past that or accept you're going to lose certain amounts of models to him and take out the, you know, the take out the wandering river monks that are doing the scheming, take out the hucksters, you know, take out the models that are actually scoring the points, that that's how you can beat him, even if you haven't killed him. Yeah, it was frustrating and, and I don't know if there's anything to be said about it, but you know, a lot of times when you have kind of that that key piece that is just you know, there's models where you just say you just gotta let that model do what it's gonna do. Sometimes you can tar pit it, but it sounds to me like it's pretty tough to tar pit uh, Shen Long. Yeah, because obviously there's a number of so there's two models. So Sensei Yu and the Wandering River Monks have a, a push attack, which obviously they can put onto Shen Long. Um, it will do him a small amount of damage, but he can he can push out from that. Um, and then obviously again that fermented river style. Yeah. Um, it, it just allows him to again if you've tar pitted him with several models, if you've given him an avenue, he will move around to the back of one of the models hit it, and then push out, and all of a sudden it's disengaged, and off he goes like a shot. So on the likes of plant explosives and stuff like that, you, know, he, you can't pin him down if you, if you need to drop that plant explosives. Yeah, no, that makes sense. How about, um, like, is, is a ranged crew something you fear? Um, not, not necessarily against, you know, taking Shen Long down, but I would imagine, you know, somebody who's got some heavy range threats uh, could could be scary territory for the other monks. Yeah, again, it, it will limit where the monks can go. So the Wandering River monks, um, they, they, you know, they'll they'll struggle a bit. They've, got, they've only got five wounds. If someone actually, you know, looks at them quite angrily, they will fall over. Um, so it's that kind of thing. Like the range crew, depending on how much terrain there's on the board and that kind of stuff, that can cause problems as you sort of shut down where the, you know, the scoring models can actually operate safely. Again, there are ways around it. So if you really are worried about it, another one of the upgrades that the Ten Thunders have to train Ninja, um, as well as giving, obviously we talked about the, the From the Shadows that it gives the Hucksters, it also gives them stealth. Nice. So again, a five-point Wandering River Monk holding a two-point upgrade starts to get a bit expensive. But if that, yep. that, that seven-point model is then stealthed, 
immune to all this sort of gunfire and can basically, you know, scheme freely, it's, it's potentially it's worth it. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So the other thing that I've noticed too, uh, doing these deep dives, Peter, is that, um, you know, you start playing a crew um, and, you know, you get five or 10 games in and you start to see some kind of some, some hidden gems or things that you didn't notice at first, but you picked up now that you've, uh, you know, know the crew like the back of your hand. You've hinted at some of that, but uh, what is some other second level play that people can look forward to when they're playing Shen Long and they start getting really good at it? I think it's basically, it's that versatility of the styles. Um, it's knowing when to switch to which style. It's no, and it's all the little tricks that the styles can do. So that, that flipping of scheme markers, um, is, you know, when you, when you learn out when that's really useful. That one, the, the fermented river styles, one inch push, um, it seems so, it seems like the least sort of offensive part of that card, but the fact that he can come in, you know, laser smackdown and then just push out of engagement uh, at the end of the attack. So I think it's, because Shenlong and his um, crew have got such a vast array of tools, yeah. um, I think it takes you those 10, almost 10, 15 games to actually learn even which tools to bring to begin with. So um, I think whereas a lot of other crews, you can tend to sort of pick them. You know, your first game, you tend to go, I'll have one of everything from the yep. keyword. Um, you can't do that with the monks. There's too many of them. Um, so you are you, you're immediately forced to focus on the monks are going to do the jobs for you and it's learning that it's 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 looking at the scheme pool and going ah there's a search the ruins in there i need to take this this and this either to score it for myself or to counter it and then that sort of that interplay with the opposing master they've declared this particular master right i need a charm order i need a lotus eater i need to put the uh, the master agent upgrade onto shen long and that's always kind of little interactions which each game each time you face a new master certainly you'll You'll, you'll learn those new tricks that you can do against that master. Um, you'll probably get beaten up in the process, um, yep. but, you, but you'll pick up that extra sort of knowledge. Yeah, I, and that was the one of the big things I was going to bring up too, Peter, and I'm glad you did, is that, you know, with all of this versatility in the right hands, I, I just can't imagine how good a monk crew is. But with that many choices and that much player agency, there's a lot of you can you can with that many choices you can make a lot of bad choices right you can you can make a lot of mistakes when you have that many options um so it does sound to me like uh experience is key to get good at it yeah you, you, i've made a lot of bad mistakes i can say that for a fact um i mean i think it is like so i think where is you're on to that sort of next level sort of uh, skill stuff with sort of 10 games i think with shen long you, you're taking those 10 games even just to learn how to pick your crews, you know, which scenarios need which models and which abilities. The next level stuff starts kicking in when you start noticing the little quirks of, you know, the, what the styles can do and some of the bonus actions on some of the monks and what Shenlong can do. And it's basically, I think it's a learning exercise until you've sort of encountered each individual master and just seen what that, how your monks interact with that master. Um, it's, it's learning that sort of bit of knowledge. Well, he sounds good. Um, unfortunately, the weaknesses and counter section was not as long as I wanted it to be, but I think you uh, you gave us something to at least to work with, Peter. Uh, but before we go, when we're recording this, we're about, um, I don't know, a month or two since uh, uh, third edition is released. And uh, for somebody like you who, you know, saw the cycles in, in 2E, um, has been playing in 3, um, I'd be curious to know, um, let's fast forward uh, six, six, eight, ten months from now. Um, what are, th is there anything that you would expect to see in, a, in, uh, 
kind of the next balancing that comes out. And I don't, I'm not asking you this because we're talking about Chen Long. So don't even talk about Chen Long getting balanced. But is there other, other things in the game that you're seeing that you think, um, might need attention, um, at 10 months down the line? Um, so yeah, a couple of things I can think of off the top of my head. So the really obvious one is, um, obeys into, uh, strategy actions. So I've no issue with obviously obey as, as a mechanic. I, I loved it. I used to play Hamlin in second edition, but mm-hmm. I think that the obey mechanic and especially as a rider into the corrupted idols and the plant explosives is that is just so strong. Yeah. Um, I, I think I'd like to see possibly the gaining grounds coming in that basically says you can't force your opponent to take that interest action. So, right. so, so the rider is still capable of obeying your, your beaters to beat up your own crew and all that kind of stuff, but she, she can't make them throw the idols around and she can't make them plant explosives or for that matter, any of the other obey masters. Um, and that would be relatively easy to outline, right? You just say, you know, a, a, a base can't be done on um, any action that's tied to a strategy or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it would be part of gaining grounds, basically, which is basically, you know, it's one line saying this action cannot be taken outside of, you know, the model, the controlling player's activations or, right. or sort of along that line just to sort of shut that down. Yep. Um, I'd like to see gaining grounds get rid of double masters. Uh, I, as well as not using them because. The, the, the tournament scene here doesn't tend to. I, I don't like the fact that you can hire two masters. Mm-hmm. I like the design space and I like the sort of the, the sort of fluffy aesthetic of it. Um, but I think the moment you go into sort of anything competitive, so many of the masters nowadays are so are strong and you, and you need to start counter. Yeah, you, know, you need to counter pick against them to be able to stealth one of those masters past your opponent is, is nasty. So. The, the obvious example is the rider. You know, you, you think you're going into a, a Neverborn crew. They declare, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, Pandora going into a, a cursed idols, and then all of a sudden the rider turns up as well. Yeah, and you, you maybe haven't taken those high willpower models. You maybe haven't taken the uh, the models that have that technology that allows you to not be controlled. And all of a sudden you find the rider on the other side of the board. Whereas, I think. The comments that people have made saying everything in Malifaux is broken and therefore effectively nothing is, but it plays into that declaring the master. So it's like yeah. it allows you to counterpick and, and dual masters basically takes that away from you and says, you know, you know what one of their masters is, but they're pro- if they're going to do it, they're going to maybe surprise you with a second master who you could have technology against, but you've lost your chance now. Yeah, Peter, I think that I got to tell you, I've heard a lot of arguments for dual masters and a lot of arguments against it. And I think what the argument you just closed on, I think it's the strongest one yet because it, it really, um, it in three, I am finding the power level of the masters is higher than in two. So I, I just find the masters to, to be bigger than they were in two and the inability to counter pick and have that stealth master slide in, I think is a really good argument against dual masters. Yeah, I think I say they're, they're more powerful, but also a lot of them can be not necessarily hard counted, but they, they can be sort of brought back into check by a exactly. crew selection. Yep, and not having that option because you didn't realise that Zoraida was going to turn up or that Lady J was going to join Perdita or you know that kind of stuff. Just I think just throws it out a little bit too much. 
No, I don't disagree at all. I think that's a, that's a strong argument. Strong argument. Well, Peter, I enjoyed this. Um, I appreciate you coming on the show. Um, unfortunately, because of our time difference, you had to stay up pretty late, and uh, I appreciate you doing that. Uh, I, I'm obviously going to link to your blog um, because uh, if anybody's not reading that, they need to fix that problem. Is there anything else that you wanted to plug? Um, so I'm guessing by the time this gets released, it's probably going to be uh, too late for our local tournament. We've got a tournament running at the end of August. Um, half out so I'll probably say the, the UK Nationals so <laughs> the 9th of November uh, we're having the, the UK Nationals tournament um, I know I believe we hold the record for the most attendees on one of our previous years and it really is good fun um, it's certainly you know going to be a, a big tournament for Malifaux uh, you get to play against sort of all the sort of the names of Malifaux so the Jamie Varneys um, you know that kind of sort of thing the, the Paul Butler will be there as well yeah. Um, so it's it's good fun. It's, it's two days, and you you'll get the games you deserve basically. So if you're a strong player, you'll find yourself on the top tables facing the other strong players. But equally, there's you know quite a lot of sort of the sort of casual or sort of more friendly players that come along as well. And you know if that's your thing, then you know you'll get the games against them. So yeah, the UK nationals. Yeah, I, I don't know how, but I'm going to get out there next year. I just got to. Um, for me, I think that's the ultimate. Uh, ultimate Malifaux event right now in the world. Um, and I've got to get a, got to figure out how to get out there and see you guys. Well, if I've made it over to Adepticon, you can make it over to Nationals. Well, you know what? Way to guilt me into it, Peter. Thanks. <laughs> no I've actually made it over to Adepticon twice, but yeah. Uh, good for you. Good for you. Uh, Peter, I enjoyed it, my friend. Um, take care of yourself and uh, we'll have to get you back to talk about another master later. Yeah. I'm happy to do that. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Take care. Be sure to check out our shop on thirdfloorwars.com for the latest gaming apparel and gear. While you're there, check out how the USFO Tour is shaping up. How does your conference compare to the others in the United States? Where do you rank nationally? Get those models built, painted, and on the table so we can see you at the U.S. Masters Invitational in October of 2020. Also, rate and write a review on this podcast for us. It really helps us find people almost as cool as you are. Thanks for listening. Howdy friend, Craig here. Is this episode making you realize you need to buy some models? Gadzooks Gaming is my favorite online retailer because of their large selection, killer prices, and great customer service. Don't you hate buying an entire crew box when you only need one model? Gadzooks sells crew box models individually and saves you a ton of money. They even have free shipping to the U.S. and Canada if you spend $100 or more. Swing by gadzooksgaming.com and make sure you tell them Craig from the third floor sent you. All the details are in the show notes.